0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
0: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, as we get more and more positive vaccine news, I think that allows people to think a little bit more about what the world is going to look like On the other side of this, and we take a look, we think about the economic environment. What will the economic environment look like on the other side, and for the years to come, to answer some of those questions? We welcome Joel Hyatt. Uh, He is a trustee emeritus at the Brookings Institution and co founder, chairman, and CEO of Globality uh, Inc., uh, based in San Francisco. Joel, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, again, as we think about getting to the point of vaccines, it gives people a little bit more confidence to look to the other side of this pandemic. One of the issues is with, you know, also with a new administration, is this gonna be a global economy? Like we were thinking about it before the pandemic, maybe even before the Trump administration where globalism was kind of the accepted way for economic growth. Do you still see globalism as a driving force in the global economy?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I recognize, of course, that COVID-19
0: interrupted
2: uh, global trade and and foreign investment. And indeed, in the few years leading up to the global pandemic, there was an overall reduction in global trade. Principally, that was manufactured goods because the global trade of services continued to increase. But absolutely, uh, uh, the pandemic interrupted it in the same way that Events like wars or financial crises uh, uh, can interrupt uh, global trade. And, you know, there have been predictions that uh, globalization is dying, at least slowing rapidly. I actually think those predictions are, are, are just completely off base. In fact, I, look, look at the pandemic itself for a clear demonstration that both the challenges and the opportunities facing the world are all global. Um it is just thrilling to see how the benefits of globalization were brought to bear on 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 bringing vaccines to the to the resolution of this pandemic. you know two two Turkish immigrants from uh, living in Germany uh, produced a vaccine that's now being shot in the arms of Americans and people all over the world and, the global supply chain, the global logistics. I mean, everything that it took to, to solve for this pandemic in record time, all of that was facilitated by globalization. And, yes, I think we will see post-pandemic uh, renewed growth uh, in, in globalization. I think that it will be dramatically led by services as opposed to uh, to products. Um, we've had marketplaces for products for quite some time. I mean, think what Amazon and Alibaba have been able to do bringing technology and scale uh, to the delivery of goods to people, again, all over the planet, tr- truly global. Uh, we haven't seen that in services, but I think that's what we're going to see in, in 2021 is the growth of Marketplace as a company like, like Globality that, that you know has built an AI-powered platform that enables companies to buy and sell services from any location uh, on the globe and, 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 and builds an ecosystem that makes doing that transparent and fair and open to, you know, all suppliers based on the merits, you know, of performance and quality and price. And th- these are big, big developments that I think uh, are on the near horizon. I think we're going to see a lot more global integration. And you're right, Paul, to suggest that the change in administration is a factor in that. There's, there's no question that is also the case.
1: Let's just for context mention that Globality is an AI-powered program and it, as you said, cuts the sourcing process, apparently from months to hours in some cases, delivers savings and you've raised about $172 million, most recently $100 million from the SoftBank Vision Fund back in January of 2019. So perhaps, Joel, you could tell us how it's been so difficult in some areas to source things that we need. So, for example, yes, the vaccine process has been phenomenal and if we continue to get a distributed the way the beginning of the distribution has happened then we are laughing but for things like PPE and then for you know re- regular everyday consumer goods like toilet paper and computer parts and so on it hasn't been so easy
2: Well look that that's true there were disruptions in in the supply chain for for typical products like that, uh, driven in part, of course, as you know, by the fears and anxieties in the early stages of the pandemic and hoarding and all of those. Well, you can't
1: things. actually buy a PC with a good graphics card at the moment. It's very, very difficult. You have to wait a month. Why is that?
2: Well, well that's uh, again, I, 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 my, my expertise is in services, not in not in manufactured goods. So I, I'm, I'm not the best. Uh, 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 to explain that um, but I think that the solutions to the problems you're raising are actually in more globalization and not less and I think that that's where the solutions uh, will come in making in in, in, in in making boundaries less and less important in, in consumers and businesses ability to source the, the goods and the services uh, mm. that they that they in fact need and so and so I really to the extent that you're addressing supply chain problems countries Countries aren't are best able to solve those problems on their own. I mean, you know, p- people I think have lost sight of the, the 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 rewards and the problems resulting from globalization. You know, over a billion. So,
1: Joel, talk to us about globalization thing. of services, then, which is what you say you're expert at. How does that grow in significance? How do I how do I use services from another country if if it's not, say, something like a customer hotline?
2: So, so great question, and there's really a couple of aspects of that. First of all, trillions of dollars of services are bought and sold just by businesses every year. And the, the opportunity to enable a company to identify the best supplier at the right price to do so quickly and to be able to source that supplier wherever that service provider happens to be is a very big deal. And by using artificial intelligence and digital technological solutions, you limit all all the frictions, and then secondly and importantly you made an interesting point look consumers they've had they've had a wonderful consumer experience when they go online to buy and the like believe it or not all those trillions of dollars of purchases of, by businesses of services they're not done through what what I would call the consumerization of the enterprise the kinds of expectations we consumers have when we go online they, they're done through the most archaic inefficient ineffective and expensive processes and all that's in the process of changing as they go through transformational innovation to again, AI powered digital solutions. Today, they start with a paper intensive request for proposal process. It's a hundred pages long. It, it makes it impossible for small companies Diverse companies, foreign companies, to compete in the global market for their business because the processes don't work. They're so inefficient. When you use technology to eliminate all that and you bring the kind of consumerization of the enterprise that makes it quick and fun and easy and adds value with, with intelligence built into the process – you open up global trade opportunities for everybody for the buyer you get better services at a lower cost and for suppliers you get access to buyers all over the world not just in your neighborhood or even your own country this is a big deal
1: all right joel thanks for joining us today joel hyatt is co-founder chair and ceo of globality
0: well if we think all the way back to the dark days of march and april in this pandemic a phrase that entered the lexicon, I believe, was "bend the curve" as we tried to get a handle on the infections in that first wave here. I'm not hearing too much about that these days, as the country experiences second or third wave, depending upon where you live. Let's get some latest on the pandemic. We do that with uh, Dr. Uh, Amesh Adalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Johns Hopkins Center for health security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And we should note that the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio operation. Uh, So Dr. Adalja, talk to me about that bend the curve conversation. We don't seem to be having it uh, this time around as cases surge. Why is that, do you think? What we really have is an uncontrolled
3: pandemic, and I don't think anybody really thinks that we are going to be able to, to flatten the curve sufficiently um, before before a vaccine. There are attempts to do so with some of the social distancing restrictions coming back into into place, but we, you know, flattening the curve was about preserving hospital capacity, trying to keep cases to a pace that's manageable, and that's clearly not the case in many parts of the country. And there's so much pandemic fatigue, and and I do think that people are are frustrated because now we are in December and. We still can't seem to get this right. We still don't have test, trace, isolate capacity in any state in, in this country. And, and we've just basically muddled through. So a lot of it is probably it's just it didn't have to be this way. And it's just a result of kind of inaction and, and the wrong actions being taken. And a lot of just uh, mismanagement of this pandemic that made flattening the curve something very hard to achieve in this country.
1: Dr. Adalja, what's your estimation now for the amount of deaths that we are going to see in the United States before this is all over?
3: I think we're already crossed 300,000. I think probably about half a million, I think would probably be somewhere where I would, if I were to kind of put it in the ballpark. I think it's going to be, you know, there's still more deaths that are going to occur before this population is vaccinated.
1: That's insane, half a million. That's another 200,000 from where we are here.
0: Yeah. So Dr. Adalja, you know, Talk to us about the vaccines. The the data I'm going to say has just been, you know, really surprisingly positive. I mean, you know, when we first started talking about these vaccines, you know, we were being told by experts, you know, fifty percent, sixty percent, seventy percent would be a phenomenal number. Then we started seeing numbers in the nineties. Uh, give us a sense of how how this came to be. How did we get such good vaccines so quickly? It is remarkable. None of us expected these first generation
3: vaccines especially ones like mRNA vaccines where we really haven't seen clinical trial data to be this effective. And I think it really is just a testament to to science advancing and the ability to improve vaccine technology. And I think these, these vaccines, especially the Moderna and the Pfizer ones, have basically shattered all expectations and really will be a way to change the face of this pan- pandemic. And uh, I, I think it's just a question now of getting this into the arms of Americans, which is going to take some time. But really, I think, mRNA vaccines re- should be thought of as as a path-breaking p- way to think about emerging infectious disease emergence uh, emerging infectious diseases in the future, and that we're that the next pandemic, the next infectious disease emergency is going to be met with an mRNA vaccine pretty quickly, and and likely be able to um, to, to really soften its blow. And I think that's uh, that's a big win. for for vaccines uh, when we look at this coronavirus pandemic kind of, you know, at at a 20,000-foot level.
1: Yeah, that's something that we can take away from it even beyond this particular coronavirus. Dr. Adolja, uh, just curious as to what you make of the fact that London says it's seeing a mutation of this virus.
3: All viruses mutate. It's important to remember that. That's just what they're going to do. And most mutations don't really have any consequence. They don't do anything functionally for the virus. And there's no evidence that this mutation that they've noticed in London, like other mutations that they've noticed, have any, have any cha- change anything about the vaccine, change anything about the treatment. And I think it's important to study these, va- these mutations and understand what their implications are. But it's important to remember that, you know, not every mutation is a scary mutation. Not every mutation is something, you know, out of a Hollywood movie where the virus acquires a new capability or evades
0: uh, a countermeasure. Uh, most, most really uh, end up being nothing. Well, that's good. That is good news. So, doctor, you know, rightfully so that the news has been about the vaccines, but also want to get your thoughts on some of the therapeutic treatments that are in the works and maybe some advances that are being made, because, again, we're having such a high caseload and we're likely to do so for uh, several months at the very least. Where are we in terms of actually treating cases when they get to the hospital? So the workhorse there is dexamethasone, which is a a cheap steroid
3: that we've been using for lots of different things over the years, and what we found is dexamethasone, when patients need oxygen, supplemental oxygen, does decrease mortality. So that's become something that we we turn to very quickly when we're we're treating a patient that needs oxygen. We have other drugs like remdesivir, and that sort of has a marginal impact. It might be able to make you get better a little bit quicker. There are some other immune-modulating drugs that are also being studied in combination with with remdesivir that might get you better, faster. But really dexamethasone is the main thing. And I would think that our improvements are are less the, the factor of drugs but more about our knowledge and our ability to understand this disease, to diagnose it quicker, to put people on the right treatment pathway to understand how to use a mechanical ventilator more appropriately and deliver oxygen to these, these people, proning them, putting them on their bellies instead of keeping them uh, face, face up, and then also recognizing, understanding, and uh, being able to treat and anticipate complications. That's something that we're much better doing now in December than we were in March, and all of this is really contingent on us having room to take care of these patients in our hospitals and not being overworked, so that's something that's important to remember, that as hospitals get stressed, all of these, all of this all these games we've made against the, the virus could could be at risk.
1: Dr. Adalja, thank you so much for all of your phenomenal information for us always. really adore speaking with you. Get straight from uh, the source. What exactly is the, the truth and the facts about all of these things that we hear uh, about from time to time, from the vaccines to the various procedures and, and so on? That is Dr. Amish Adalja, Senior Scholar and Infectious Disease Physician at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. <laughs> Dave Hunt is the president of Hunt Auctions. It's partnered with Christie's to present the auction Home Plate, a private collection of important baseball memorabilia. It's interesting this year because it's expected to do extraordinarily well. Just this morning, Peter Buchvar of Bleakley Advisors was writing about the appetite for memorabilia and how, uh, you know, prices are really just becoming inflated. Dave Hunt is our guest now. So Dave, thanks for joining us all the way from Philadelphia. First, give us a little idea of the types of things that you have on auction.
4: Yeah, great to be here. I think uh, this collection's really quite unique in that it spans, really, uh, baseball history all the way from the 19th century almost to present. Uh, and there's, of course, things you'd want to see in an iconic collection like this, game-used pieces from Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Ty Cobb, Honus Wagner, and, and, and on. Um, and as we've seen, as you've noted, Our market has been steadily growing over the last several decades, but these last two years, uh, and even this year with the pandemic, the pricing, and maybe more notably, the interest by volume has just increased uh, by many multiples. And it's just sort of fascinating to see, and and we see a lot of growth in the future as well.
0: So, David, what's driving that growth? I mean, for the stock market, we could always say, oh, don't fight the Fed, interest rates are low, bidding up stocks. How about on the memorabilia market? What's kind of the drivers of value there generally?
4: Yeah, I think what we've seen, uh, we've done this for thirty years now, and, and what we've always felt was the potential, the scalability of sports. Just clients that potentially like sports, one, and have some means to purchase something related to it, two. Uh, that's an enormous volume of clientele potentially, and it just continues to increase. And I, I don't, I think we've really just scratched the surface, especially as you compare these pieces, you know, to other fields, you know, whether it's in, in a, in a piece of artwork uh, or a different collectible a different field that have had a much more mature market, ours is really still only 30 or 40 years old, uh, which if you think about it by normal standards, is not that, not that, uh, not that dated. Uh, so as we see that increase, and especially this year with just everybody looking for nostalgia in their life, looking mm-hmm. to figure out something different than this particular year, I think that's part of what's really led to this increase uh, and more of maybe an appreciation of the particular artifacts and, and how they relate to some of these iconic sports figures.
1: Who are the people with this kind of cash? We know that, for example, last Thursday, Wayne Gretzky rookie card in perfect condition was auctioned off for $1.29 million. It's a card that sold for 465000 just in August of 2016. So that's a triple, uh, tripling nearly of its value in just four years. Who can afford to lay down that kind of cash and, and hope that you know, these cards and these, these memorabilia appreciate
4: Yeah, what we've seen is sort of a a wide and diverse group of of people purchasing these items. So you've got sort of a core group of seasoned collectors and investors that have been doing this for a number of years. Uh, And they sort of follow almost blue chips, if you will, in our world, the Babe Ruth, uh, Gamey's Bats, or the Lou Gehrig pieces or what have you. And then you're seeing a lot of new people get into this that are purchasing more modern pieces, such as the card you referenced. And I think the confluence of all of that, in addition to the fact that these pieces really are truly great investments, not just financially, but they're enjoyable. They're not a piece of paper that's in a lockbox somewhere. There's something you can enjoy, can share, can display in different institutions. Uh, and, and that enjoyability factor, if you will, uh, seems to be translating tangibly into pricing as we continue to see the market increase.
0: All right. So, David, I'm going to call memorabilia, sports memorabilia, kind of an alternate asset class, much like uh, we'll see an art or, or wine. And you know some of those markets over the years, which are probably much more developed, we've seen a lot of international interest, whether it's Japanese or Middle East or now Chinese. Is a sports memorabilia business primarily a domestic U.S. business, or do you see uh, interest from abroad? It's a
4: great question. Yeah, w- w- I-, I think that in other fields, it's uh, a more in-depth interest abroad, but it is definitely developing in sports. We're noticing that. We're clientele are purchasing things uh, from, from different countries. I mean, we've been a partner with the NFL and NFL auction for a number of years. And, for instance, every year we do an event at the Super Bowl. So we will see bids come in from Australia, from England, uh, from Japan. So that's uh, really probably more related to the, the uh of sports across the world through social media, through different platforms, through these exhibition games that the leagues mm. are playing in yep. different countries. And that is tailing into the memorabilia market. So you sort of see these layers come in and adding uh, more depth and, and obviously in turn more pricing increases to, to our market due to some of those sorts of uh, reasonings.
1: So if you want to... Uh, P- place a bid on a Babe Ruth Boston Red Sox era professional model baseball bat circa 1916 to 1918. Yeah. W- what are you looking at putting down, and how would you do it?
4: Well, if you go to com slash baseball, you can see all the items. And even if you're not interested in bidding, we encourage people to see them because this really is a museum-worthy uh, collection. But a bat like that, uh, which is estimated at a half a million to a million dollars, Seems like a lot of money, but I remember when those bats 20 years ago were ten and $15,000, literally. And we see a lot of increased potential for a piece like that with only two specimens known, that date to his rookie seasons uh, with the Red Sox before he obviously continued his career uh, with the Yankees. So there's a number of incredible pieces related to some of the greatest names in baseball.
1: And there's Dave, stuff as well from the 1903 World Series, the 1929 New York Yankees, the 1934 U.S. All-Star Tour of Japan. Paul, a field yeah. day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> got, they've got everything there. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to go to that website as soon as we're done here. David Hunt, thank you so much for joining us. David Hunt, president of Hunt Auctions, uh, talking about sports memorabilia and this is search for global yield. People may be looking at some of these alternative asset classes like sports memorabilia. Uh, very interesting to see the growth in that business.
1: Let's bring in Miles Weiss now, a very important conversation. He's our SEC reporter, and he has been looking at Blackstone, a great story on the Bloomberg. And and here's the beginning. With companies and industries from healthcare to battery storage in its portfolio, Blackstone has a massive buyout unit with a unique view into the economy. Soon, it may offer peaks to outsiders willing to pay. Miles, this story is about Blackstone potentially selling the data of the companies that it owns. Is it allowed to do this?
5: Um, Hi. Right. No, currently um, it it doesn't have the leeway to do this under its uh, the uh, the offering uh, documents for its various private equity funds. Although it does, it can do it for uh, some of the companies that it has uh, relationships with that aren't that are owned and by the buyout fund. So it would have to have to put some language in that explicitly uh, allows them to uh, to sell the data. Mm-hmm.
0: So miles, who would be the buyers of this data It seems like it's really really granular uh, who has an appetite for that
5: well uh, hedge funds have been using this this kind of tr- using uh, big data quite a bit to try and get a uh, get an edge in when they're trading or uh, uh, insights into how a particular stock so they they're definitely one uh, customer and the other would be just other other companies that are in the 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 uh, business sectors that um, maybe that uh, Blackstone's uh, portfolio companies are in who might, might uh, want to use the data just to, um, you know, improve their own operations like sales and marketing or, or something along those lines.
1: Now, you were eagle-eyed and you saw this plan disclosed in filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. You say it's a, a, an exploratory effort, quoting a spokesperson. What does this mean? Does Blackstone anticipate that the SEC will, will change over its personnel and therefore it might become possible for Blackstone to actually enact this plan?
5: Um I I think when they when they when they say exploratory I think that means that they're just um they're just going out into the market and, and seeing, you know, what sort of um interest there is in this from from potential customers and what it would take to set it up. They they are uh they are committed to doing it. They already have a substantial uh data um Data management unit that's that's kind of gathering data from the different companies, and they are allowed to use it internally. So it would just be another step for that the unit they already have in place to to go from uh, providing it to other Blackstone uh, uh, entities to selling it, um, you know, into the to outside um,
0: customers. It's amazing, Miles. I've you know I've been looking at this information technology business for about thirty years, and there was a time companies like Dun and Bradstreet you couldn't give them away. Data had little to no value right. other than maybe a couple of you know you know products you could derive off of it. But now it seems like there's just tremendous value being put on data in the marketplace. Lots of consolidation, companies buying other companies to get more scale. Is this Blackstone just saying, hey, this looks like a hot market? We now have a an asset that maybe didn't have much value 10 or 15 years ago but now does
5: yeah i think that yeah i think I, I think that's that's true and and there's just so much interest in in just finding something that will give uh you know uh give you a, a unique insight into you know into how the markets are going or how different companies are going and the, i think it's just a matter of um you know, things becoming more competitive and and uh, again people trying to find an edge edge in in that competition
1: fascinating miles you'll have to keep us updated on this. It's something we should be watching so what else uh, have you been noticing coming in at the end of the year is is the end of the year a big push for filings
5: uh well there's been a, a lot of uh, uh mutual funds and such that have been uh you know, making changes at year end, uh, either in the, the some of the personnel that um, you know, changing like portfolio managers or changing the uh, the way their funds work, uh, basically to kind of um, you know, kind of kind of adjust to all the changes that have occurred in, in 2020.
0: And there have been a few changes. Miles Weiss, thanks so much for joining us. Miles is the SEC reporter from Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. And uh, it's interesting, Vonnie, the the value that's being put on you know, just raw data these days, I guess with computing power, uh, it just makes it so much more valuable for users in different ways.
1: Right, exactly, where before you couldn't really do much with it, now you can just shove it all into a a blender or a machine and it'll spit out results to you that could be very useful for your business. Yeah, and we've
0: seen that, you know, hedge fund managers use, uh, you know, kind of this primary data, if you will, uh, for years, and now maybe some other applications as well.